morning. If we can start making our way to our seats, we'll get started. It's great to see everyone this morning. I'd like to welcome those who are watching us online or those in the gym. We're so happy you're with us this morning to worship the Lord. Hurry up, Molly. Hurry. Hurry. Just kidding. No VBS announcement this morning. We're done with that. That's right. Well, it's great to see everybody. Just want to announce just a few things. First off, for the men, this Tuesday's night's uh, trek over Lagoon Golf Park has been canceled due to the possibility of inclement weather. So this Tuesday night, May 4th, the men's hike is canceled. However, there are many more coming up in June and July. If you go on to our website at gatewaybaptist.com, there's a whole list of the uh, outings that will be coming up in the near future for that. So you can go check that on the website. Also, just as another reminder, in a couple weeks, May 21st, 22nd, the overnight backpacking trip is still on for Chihaw. Uh, registration is required, and the website's now open for you to do that uh, so they can get enough guys signed up to see how much they need to take for transportation and everything else. So May 21st and 22nd. Also, just a quick reminder of what opportunities we have each Sunday morning. We highly encourage you to come before the service and Connect a little deeper in some discipleship and community. Uh, 8 a.m. in the room one in the gym building is a time of prayer where we just intercede for our church and our city, um, for different relationships that are going on. Um, Greg, it's great to have you in. Great to see you today. Uh, he's one of our elders, but don't hold that against us. I'm just kidding. Um, just play. We got to get that door fixed. <laughs> anyway, welcome, Greg Teal. So also this morning at 9 a.m., got to love levity. Every 9 a.m. in the gym building as well, we have some great discipleship opportunities with some Bible studies, um, three studies uh, being led by our elders. Jeff Moody's leading a, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Greg, Rick, and Mark are leading an in-depth verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians. And uh, William and Ron are leading a study called The Chosen, The Life of Christ. So three adult studies. We'd love for you to connect. All the information is on our website. But those begin at 9 a.m. I ask you to please stand as we begin our time together. I'm going to read us a passage of scripture to prepare our hearts before the Lord before we worship him through song. Psalm 33, verses 1 through 11. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations. Let's worship the Lord together. Oh, no. 
Jesus' blood and righteousness. I did not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand.
Bye. 
Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your sprinkled blood. Thank you for bringing us into this heavenly assembly. Because all we have is you, God. And because of that, we have everything. So, Lord, in light of being a part of that family, of being welcomed into that assembly, we bring these prayer requests before you. Because we know that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. That you care deeply for us and what we are facing, God. And we pray these requests and faith, knowing that we do not understand, that we are incapable, that we are weak, but you are strong. And so we bring these requests to you, and we also bring our hearts before you, asking that your will be done, and your kingdom come. Thank you, God, for the opportunity our young people have to meet in small groups tonight in the beginning of this ministry. We pray that you would do the work of discipleship and sanctification in, these, in their hearts. God, bring unity and community to them as they seek Lord, thank you for the River Region food bus and for Jeremy Lynch as he leads the ministry to feed those in need here in this city from the Montgomery Baptist Association. And as he seeks to share the gospel, God, continue to meet those needs of the people that he comes in contact with and continue to bless that ministry. And for Pastor Frank Bowling at Eastmont Baptist Church, God, for our brothers and sisters over there on Atlanta Highway, we pray that you would speak to them this
this morning that you would raise up a strong community there as they seek to honor you. And Lord, as we think beyond just our city into the world, we pray for Taylor and Sarah Fox and their ministry in Strasburg. What a difficult season it has been, God, for, for them and for other global missionaries as they try to negotiate living in, in Europe and other parts of the world and the COVID pandemic and between restrictions, God. We just pray that you would give them a sense of your grace and a sense of your peace and that their ministry would continue to grow even in the midst of what seems like a, a world that would be restrictive. God, we know that you've moved beyond these boundaries. And we pray for the KDD tribes of northeastern Brazil, another group that missionaries have been unable to reach because of the pandemic. We pray that the pandemic would lessen there, that missionaries would be able to step back in and to build on the contacts that they've been able to maintain, at least by technology. And we pray for the believers there that are seeking to continue to grow in their faith and to spread the gospel without the missionary influence. We pray for peace for them, that you would give them hope and a sense of your love and purpose for them. And God, as we think about our service this morning and Grady coming uh, to share with us the word that you put on his heart, we pray that you would give him your words to speak to us, that you would give him give him the words to say that would speak to us. And Father, we pray also for our offering. God, as we give back to you what's already yours, we pray that it would be used for your ministry and that you would make us cheerful givers. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jennifer there in the hall. There we go. So we have a fun group this morning again. They're still coming. <laughs> uh, well, good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you on this beautiful day that the Lord has given to us. I want you to find Matthew 22 in your copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 22. As we continue our study of Rooted, as we're seeking God's grace to be more grounded in His Word and more grounded in what we believe. Now, as you know, if you've been around Gateway these months, we're using the New City Catechism as our guide through this, and I hope you have a copy. If not, they're all over the campus on the table in the back, in the gym, in the hallway outside the church office. But if you are have, if you do have it already, I hope you're using it. I hope you're reviewing it. And if you're not, it's not too late to get started. We're just on question seven of it. So if you haven't had a chance to review the recent songs with your kids or yourself or with your friends, it's not too late. I hope you'll jump in with that and go back and review those as we continue to work through this. Now, everything we've seen these first several weeks of, the, of our study of Rooted is in a section of the Catechism called God, Creation in the Fall, and the Law. And we've already seen some of those themes emerge over these last several weeks. We've looked at creation, how God made the world. We looked at the why of creation, why God made everything, and why He made us. We've looked at the nature of God and who He is and explored more about the Trinity. Now, we're beginning another section of this kind of foundation, of this, and it's a section on the law. This will be an emphasis that will take us for the next three months through the end of July. Now, I'm excited about it, which is probably not what most people think about when we think about studying the law, right? It's an area of our faith that I think we often neglect to our own peril. It's not what we're typically drawn to. It's, I want to go study the law, but that's what we're going to focus in on over the next three months. And I pray that it'll give us a biblical understanding of the law of God and what it requires and why it was given. So to begin that topic for us this morning, we come to question seven. And question seven is quite simply, what does the law of God require? If we're going to spend several months on this theme of the law, then this is a good place to start. It's a, the big picture of it, what does the law of God require? 
Now, friends, this is an important question. We've already seen in recent weeks that God is the creator of everyone and everything. And if God is the creator, which he is, that means God has the right to tell his creation how it's to operate. He has the right to tell his people how they're to live in his created order. And he reveals that standard, his expectations, in what we call the law, which we'll explain more about that in just a minute. So what does God require is revealed to us in the law. And we're going to find the answer in Matthew chapter 22 this morning in a conversation that Jesus had with this very skeptical religious leader. So we're going to pick up this morning in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. We'll have the words on the screen for you, and I'm reading out the English Standard Version. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we thank you for giving us the law, that we would see who you are and see what your will is. And I pray as we explore that this morning and the weeks to come, you would open our eyes to understand more of your holiness, to understand more of your glory, to understand more of Lord, our need, our desperate need for you. So have your way as we study your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what does the law of God require? Now to answer that, you know, if you have the New City Catechism, there's a kid's answer and there's an adult answer. And so in the words of my kids, I want to do a hybrid answer this morning. I want to pull a few things from the adult answer and a few things from the kid's answer to help us see what the law of God requires. And here's our answer for the morning. The law of God requires that we perfectly and perpetually obey God by loving him and loving others. What the law of God requires is that we perfectly and perpetually obey God And we do so by loving him and loving others. Friends, that is God's standard. That is God's requirement. And friends, it is astronomically high. God demands complete obedience. He demands perfection. Not just when it's convenient for us, not just when we want to, but perpetually all the time. And if that's not astronomically high enough, he then goes to our heart motives and says, and you have to have this perfect perpetual obedience out of love for me and love for other people. That is a terrifying standard, and I want us to explore that this morning, how God's law requires that we perfectly and perpetually obey Him by loving Him and loving others. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here as He's answering this question, I want us to see the context of what's happening here in Matthew chapter 22. This is a time when Jesus' ministry was growing. Jesus' influence was growing. As you know from the New Testament, when Jesus' ministry and influence grows, the opposition grows as well. And the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, were very unhappy with the influence Jesus had in the people who were listening to Jesus. And so we see this kind of opposition growing. If you go back a few verses to Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, you see it says, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him and his words. So they're already upset with Jesus' influence. They're trying to figure out how can they trap Jesus. And here in earlier Matthew 22, they thought they had the perfect trap. They asked Jesus the question, Should people pay taxes to the Roman government? And they thought this was a perfect question because if Jesus says, well, no, you're not obligated to pay taxes to the government, then all the religious zealots, you know, would kind of rise up and it would stir them up. Or if he said, yes, you should, then they would get even angrier. And so he realized whatever answer Jesus gave would either stir up the zealots or stir up the Roman government, everyone would be unhappy. So they thought they had the perfect trap for Jesus. But if you look back at how Jesus answered, go back to verse 19 here. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodonites, and saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, 
Whoops, sorry, I'm on the wrong text there. Let me go back to it. So, sorry, verse 19 there. So I was like, that doesn't sound right. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now, verse 20. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, verse 21. They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, and this is his brilliant answer. Therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, look at verse 22. And when they heard it, these are people trying to trap Jesus. They marveled, and they left him, and they went away. Jesus had outsmarted them once again, but they didn't give up at this point. In the next account that follows in Matthew 22 here, they have an encounter with the Sadducees, another religious group. And while he's interacting with the Sadducees, the Pharisees are back trying to figure out how do we trap Jesus. And that's where we pick up this morning. They haven't given up on it. They're determined to trap Jesus. And so back to our verse this morning, verses 34 and 35. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So again, there's a test. They're trying to trap Jesus, and now they've sent a lawyer to do that. Now, we need to understand what this means. When they say a lawyer came, this is not a guy who had billboards all over Jerusalem, okay? This is not the guy who was going around Jerusalem being like, dial three for me. Like, that's not what this is talking about here, okay? This is not a legal lawyer like we would think about in our sense today. This was a lawyer in terms of the religious lawyers, the teacher of law. This guy was the expert in the Old Testament law. This was the Pharisee. This is the best training. You see what they've done? The other Pharisees they sent to Jesus have been silenced. They, they couldn't stand up to Jesus' wisdom. So they now find their best trained lawyer, the best trained one who understands the Old Testament the best, and they send him in to Jesus, thinking if anyone can trap Jesus, our expert in the law, the top of us who understands all the Pharisaical laws, he will be the one who can get Jesus. And that's who comes now before Jesus in verse 36. And comes saying, teacher, which is the great commandment and the law. Now, why this question, friends? Why, of all things, do they ask Jesus, what's the most important, what's the greatest of the commandments? Two reasons. One, this is actually, historians say, was actually a debate among the religious leaders at the time. Like, the religious leaders were actually discussing and debating which command was the most important. There was disagreements. Now, if you go back to this time, soon after this, the rabbis who were religious leaders tried to count the laws. And soon after the time of Jesus, they concluded there were 613 commands that the Jewish people had to obey. Now, if you, got 600, if you have a list of 613 commands, the natural question is, okay, which of those are most important? Which of those we need to focus on in holding over the people to be doing? So there was actually a debate among these Jewish leaders at the time of what was the most important of those 613 commandments. But don't forget the second reason why he asked this question. They're trying to test Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him to stumble. And by asking this open-ended and controversial question, they thought surely they could get him on this. But once again, Jesus' wisdom silences them. Their arguments, their traps do not work. And he answers them in this brilliant way. And his answer answers for us the question for the morning, what does the law of God require? Now, to help us understand, this is a big question, an important question, so foundational. I want us to ask six questions this morning to kind of drive at that main idea of what the law requires. So let's see these six questions to see the, how deep this truth is about what God's law requires. So number one for us this morning, what is the law of God. We're going to start somewhere to start with understanding our terminology, right? What do we mean when we talk about the law? We'll go back to verse 36 again. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now remember, this was written now to us. This is being said before the New Testament was written. So when this religious teacher asks us, he's thinking of what we would know today as the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. And so he would be having in view the entire Old Testament 
but particularly what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because there in the Pentateuch, in those first five books of the Bible, you have the law very clearly communicated. From the Ten Commandments to all the other laws that are given to God's people are laid out there in front of them. And so the law then for us is all the commandments in Scripture. So quite simply, what is the law? It's all the commandments found in Scriptures. And now it's called different things in different places. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, you'll see several terms that all reference the law. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it. So notice it's sometimes called commandments, sometimes it's called statutes, sometimes it's called rules, sometimes it's called law. It's all talking about the same thing. So what is the law of God? It's the commandments found throughout Scripture. That leads to our second question, what do the commandments require? What does the law of God require? And in one word answer that question, obedience. The commandments require obedience. Still here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Notice this last phrase after he says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may... What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? To do them. This is obedience as before. So we're to do them. That God doesn't tell them just for their own information or curiosity. This is to be followed and obeyed. So the commandments are given for people to obey them. And if you think of the commandments, there's really two broad types of commandments. There's commandments that are things we must not do, right? Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie and bear false witness. You could go on and on. But there's commandments that are about what we do not do. But there's a second type of commandments as well, and those are the things that we are required to do, the must-dos. Honor your father and mother. Work hard six days. Rest on the seventh day. Meet the needs of the widows and the orphans and the foreigners. We could go on and on, but again, there's things that we must do. And so when we're told that we're to take these commandments, the statutes, the rules that God has commanded to us, the law, we're to obey them. Whether they're things not to do or things that we're required to do, we're to obey all of them. Why? Because together they show us the will of God. Together they show us His standard, His requirement, and it shows us that we are to obey Him. Now, friends, that's not new to us. I think everyone in the room could articulate what does the law require. We could all say obedience. But, friends, I think the familiarity with that concept makes us lose some of the wonder and awe and fear we should have at this thought. I fear we've lost the ability to tremble at the thought of what God's law actually requires. And this week when I was studying on this, there was a phrase in the catechism that just kept arresting my attention. And it was the phrase, perfect and perpetual obedience. Think about that, perfect and perpetual obedience. It's not just the obedience that's required by God. But he requires perfect and perpetual obedience. And friends, I have been chewing on that and thinking on that all week long. And think about that. God's standard for us is absolute, 100% total perfection. This is not a scale to where, if, where we think I'm doing more good than bad, surely it's okay. No, that God's standard is not a scale for us. His standard is all or nothing. See this in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by, how many things? All, all things written in the book of the law and do them. The God's standard is we have to obey all of the law and we have to do all of the law. You see the same thing when we studied James last year, James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. You see the same truth there. For whoever keeps the whole law, but notice this, but fails in one point, has become accountable for how much of it? All, All of it. God's standard is total obedience. For the next verse, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. God's standard is all or nothing. Now, why is that, friends? 
because the law of God is a unified whole. Don't miss that. When we talk about the law of God, all these commands all throughout Scripture, it is a unified whole. It's not just like random things God says. It is a representation of the complete revealed will of God. And so if we break one command, one law, we're shaking our fist at God and saying, not your will, God, but mine. Every time we sin, we're shaking our fist and saying, it doesn't matter what you say, I'm doing it my way. So to break one part of the law is to reject the law because we're rejecting God's will that he has presented to us. Therefore, just one sin at any one time makes us sinners, makes us lawbreakers, and makes us rebels to God's will. God's standard is perfect obedience. But the second word in that phrase that has been capturing my attention this week is the word perpetual. That God requires perfect and perpetual obedience. God's standard is all or nothing all of the time. The God's standard is complete perfection every moment of every day. And again, any violation at any one point makes us guilty of rejecting the will of God. So what is the law? It's all the rules and commands of Scripture. What is God's standard? It's perfect and perpetual obedience. Now, if you're thinking about that, you may be thinking, but wait, Grady, in Matthew 22, Jesus never said obey. In fact, he didn't say obey at all in this talk of what is the great commandment. What did he say instead? Look back in verses 37 to 39 in our text today. And he, Jesus, said to him, this Pharisee trying to test him, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that leads to our third question for the morning. Why did Jesus talk about love instead of obedience? If the whole law is about us obeying God, if that's his standard, his requirement, then why did Jesus not say obey God on all these commands? Instead, he says love. I want to make sure we understand this, friends, because there's people who misconstrue this verse in this text to say that basically the commands don't matter, that all that matters now today is love. If you just love, do whatever you want to do out of that love, and everything is okay. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What is he doing instead? Instead of lowering the standard, he's raising the standard for us. Jesus is moving us from focusing on the externals to focusing on our heart motivations. He's taking us from just saying, have I done this right, to what was my heart motivation behind this. He's moving us from externals to heart motivation. He's raising the bar. One author I read this week said it this way. He said, Jesus' answer takes us from achievement to the heart attitude. He's taking us from achievement, thinking I can accomplish things, to our heart motives. And think about that. What is Jesus doing? He's peeling back the layers of our self-deceit. Because, friends, we all struggle with thinking we're better than we really are. Our human flesh wants to think we're better than other people and that we're basically following God and we're really doing okay on all this. And Jesus is peeling back those layers of our self-deceit to show us that what God requires is not just these external things, but he's requiring a perfect heart attitude as well as perfect actions. He's not lowering the standard to just love. He's raising the standard to say, do everything the law requires out of a perfect heart attitude that loves God and loves other people. This emphasis on the heart should not have surprised the Jewish religious leader here, though it probably did, because it had already been revealed in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 51, verse 16. In Psalm 51, this is David's prayer of confession after he had committed adultery. And it's a beautiful place. It shows us what repentance looks like. And he says something interesting in Psalm 51. He says, For you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now, verse 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, what is David saying? That sacrifices don't matter? No, because in verse 19, a few verses later, he actually talks about offering sacrifice. So he's not doing away with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament at this point. He's saying simply the sacrifices are insufficient if the heart doesn't match it. 
He can't just go before God and make a sacrifice when his heart is still in, like, gripping onto that sin. He, his heart has to be broken over sin, and then out of the overflow of the sacrifice, he's taking it to the heart level, not just the externals, which is what Jesus did as well when he talked about some of the commandments earlier. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, notice how Jesus takes us from the externals back to the heart. He says, you have heard it was said of those of old, you shall not murder Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, verse 22, he doesn't lower the standard, he raises it. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus takes the law, do not murder, and says, I'm going to add to it here. You can't even hate someone in your heart. He does the same thing with adultery and sexual morality. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He takes the law and he adds to it. It says, not enough to do the externals. You have to have the heart motivation correctly as well. So bring that together. God's requiring us in the law to perfectly and perpetually obey from the right heart motivations always, all the time. Now, what are the right heart motivations? In one word, love. And there's two directions that love is to go. The heart motivation to which all the obedience to all these hundreds of commands is to be, is to flow from a heart of love. First of all, a love for God himself. A love for God himself. We're to perfectly delight in loving God himself. Go back to verse 37 in our text for today. And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now see what Jesus is doing here. He's got this expert in the law, this religious leader standing before him. So Jesus quotes one of the most famous of the Old Testament texts for the Jewish people. Something from Deuteronomy called the Shema. This was recited in faithful Jewish homes over and over through the day. And look at where he's quoting from. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Jesus takes this command that was so well known among the Jewish people and brings it back to the Pharisee here who's standing before him. But you notice he changed the term on this. He says in Deuteronomy 6, 5 that you're to love God with all of your heart, soul, and might. Now if we go back to verse 37 of our text today, you're to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now what is Jesus doing here? Why has it changed? Well, we need to realize that the terms heart and soul and might were not designed to be some breakdown of the human psyche. It was not like a psychological explanation here. This part of you is your heart, and this part is your soul, this part is your, your might. When that was said in Deuteronomy, that was to communicate totality, whole person. And so Jesus just switches from physical might to intellectual might and switches from might to mind because it still communicates the same thing of totality of person. This is not a thing for us to break down how's my heart different than my might and my mind. The point is our whole self loving God. That our whole being, our, whether it's our emotions, whether it's our minds, whether it's our thoughts, whether it's our soul, whether it's our physical strength, everything about our life is to be loving God. That's why the word all is repeated three times in here. He could have easily said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. But he didn't. He emphasized all over and over. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The point is that we are to love God with all of ourselves perpetually and perfectly all the time. In other words, God is to always be first in our life. That's what the first two commandments and the Ten Commandments were about that we're going to see more of when we start on the Ten Commandments next week. So we're to perfectly delight in loving God, but we can't stop there. God, Jesus also says we're to perfectly delight in loving our neighbor. Look at verse 39. He says, a second 
is like it. That just simply means that this is equally important, that you cannot do what he just said without doing what follows. You can't do what follows without doing what he's previously said. These are both before God. These are both God's standards, and they're together what God requires. And what does he require in terms of our love, our heart motivations? A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, again, Jesus is referencing an Old Testament text here, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. In Leviticus 19, 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, again, whether it's Leviticus here where Jesus mentions this, he says we're to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this gets abused as well in our modern culture. You have people telling you you need to learn how to love yourself, and you can't love others until you love yourself. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying you naturally in your flesh already love yourself. That's why you give yourself sleep. That's why you give yourself food. That's why you physically take care of yourself. That you already naturally take care of yourself. And that part's okay because we're supposed to steward our bodies. They're gifts from God, right? But he says also you're sinfully doing that. That we take this natural desire to care for ourselves and that becomes our focus. We get obsessed with our rights and our desires and our wants and all these things. And we take this healthy caring for ourselves and it becomes our obsession. We become our own idols and all this. So this is not a call to go love yourself more. This is saying you already love yourself because you're following people who struggle with this. Now with the same effort you put into caring for yourself, go care for other people with that same emphasis. So the point here is not go love yourself. The point is care for others the way you already are caring for yourself. That raises the question, who are the others we're to care for with this really high standard? Well, in Leviticus 19, the focus was on their own people. He was telling the Israelites to to love their, uh, their neighbors and their community as they love themselves. And remember, Jesus doesn't lower the standard. He raises it. And so in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, you have the story here of Jesus who is now encountering the, another one of the Pharisees. And this is so interesting here. Actually, I want to go back a few verses beyond what I even have on the screen because I want you to see this. This, is, this just hit me as I was rereading this this morning. Here you have another Pharisee coming to Jesus here. And in Luke chapter 25, let me get over there. Sorry, it's not marked for me this morning. In Luke, chapter, in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 here, you have another Pharisee coming to Jesus. If I can get to the right place, because the pages are sticking there. There we go. Luke chapter 10. And behold, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Sound familiar, right? This is before, or right after what happened today. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus said to this Pharisee, this religious lawyer, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the Pharisee answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind, your neighbor's self. Now, stop here. This just hit me this morning. I totally missed this studying this week till this morning. Notice when he answers him, he answers with all things, both from what Deuteronomy said, but also what Jesus said. He said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and strength, your heart, soul, and mind. He obviously has heard what Jesus said because he took the Old Testament and he's taken Jesus' teaching and he's merged them together here. So this must have happened after what we read this morning on this. And he says, and he says to Jesus, he answers correctly. Jesus says to him in verse 28 there, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, this religious lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So again, he knows the standard that God has given to us. says, who is my neighbor? And what follows is the parable of the Good Samaritan. What follows is the parable of Jesus talking about a man who had been, had been hit by robbers along the road. And all these people you would think would care for him didn't. And they just kept going, kept going. And the person who's most hated in their society, the Samaritan, is the one who stops and cares for him. And so Jesus asked this lawyer this haunting question in verse number 36 of Luke 10. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? In verse 37 here, what happens? He said to him, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So what's happening here? This guy has understood the command, not just as revealed in the Old Testament, but has understood and can articulate what Jesus said, love God with your whole self. And Jesus says, but he doesn't want to have to do that. It's our human flesh. He says, so who's my neighbor? He's trying to limit how much he actually has to do because his heart motives are so wrong in this. And Jesus raises the bar and says, whoever shows mercy. In other words, whoever God puts in your path, whether they're from your nation or not, your neighborhood or not, whoever God puts in your path is your neighbor. Anyone else made in the image of God is your neighbor. And the standard is to love them as you love yourself. That means if they're our coworker, our physical neighbor in our neighborhood, someone sitting alongside you at church today, whether it's the cashier at Walmart or the person who cuts you off on Eastern Boulevard, they're still all our neighbors. That anyone God puts in our path is by God's design our neighbor, and we're to treat them accordingly. So how do we treat them? Back to our text today, verse number 39, back in our Matthew text today, we are to love them as we love ourselves. This is an incredibly high standard God has given to us, that he's saying our heart motives towards God has to be loving him with every part of us all the time. He's saying your heart motives to everyone you meet, even people in the community around you who cut you off or who are mean to you at Walmart or whatever else, is to love them with the same passion you have in loving yourself. And because of that, he concludes in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, this word depend literally means to hang from, to be suspended from. He's saying that if from this heart motive of loving God and loving others, everything else flows. Every other command in the Bible has to come from, obedience to it has to come from this heart motive of loving God and loving others. The law of God requires that we perfectly and perpetually obey God by loving Him and loving others all of the time. That leads to question five this morning. Who can do that? And the answer is none of us right? The answer is very clearly, none of us can meet this standard at any day, any given day. There's not even one day of my life or your life that we can meet this standard. Galatians chapter 3, we looked at verse 10 earlier, but I want you to see how it flows into helping us see that we're incapable of meeting this standard. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now verse 11. Now it is evident Okay, here we go, Paul. This is very true. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. To be justified means to be declared righteous, that none of us are capable of standing before God and God saying, man, you did a great job loving me perfectly, perpetually, all the time. You did a great job of perfectly and perpetually loving everyone more than you love yourself all the time. Good job. Come on into heaven. No one can be justified because none of us can love God perfectly and perpetually all the time, and none of us can love our neighbor perfectly and perpetually all the time. That's why Romans 3.23 concludes in a text that we look at often and are very familiar with, for all have sinned, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. Now, there's an author online named John Bloom. I love his articles, and he said this. I was reading it this week, and this is really kind of caught my attention. He said, there are no commandments in the Bible more devastating than the two that Jesus said are the greatest. Think about that for a minute. He's saying these commandments we just read are devastating to us. He said, if I ever thought I was a pretty good person, these commandments destroy that delusion. He said, I've never once kept even the first clause of the foremost commandment. At the very best moments of my life when my affections for God have been the highest and my devotion has been the strongest, my heart has still been polluted with the indwelling sin of selfishness and I am rarely at my highest or at my strongest. Right, friends? I think we could all say the same thing. None of us have ever perfectly kept that first phrase to love God 
with all of our heart, even in the moments to when we're worshiping God and singing to Him and we're most kind of enamored with God's presence and the, the highest spiritual peaks for us in our life, even in those highest worshiping moments, our hearts still have selfishness in them. Our hearts are still wanting to turn from the Lord. Even at our highest peak moments of worship and intimacy with the Lord, our hearts are still clouded with selfishness and we don't live on those peak moments all the time, do we? And if we can't even please God and obey this command perfectly at those high moments, we're certainly not going to in our everyday lives as well. We fail to perfectly and perpetually do these commands. We've all failed to do these commands perfectly even this morning since we woke up. When another author I read this week said it this way, he said, as I write this, I shudder. A review of the last week reveals all too many occasions when I failed to love my Lord and failed to love my neighbor. And friends, if we're honest with each other, as we think over the last week, there have been so many moments in my life and your life where we have failed to love God with our whole being. We failed to love other people that God put in our path and His sovereign plan the way that we care for ourselves. None of us can obey this law. At least our last question for the morning, what then is the point of the law? Question six, what then is the point of the law? Now, if you've read ahead in the New City Catechism, we're going to answer that in question 22. We're in question seven right now. That's going to be a while. That'll be quite a while down the road on that. So I want to go ahead and give us a brief answer for us now, and we will be getting to that one in the months to come. But I don't want to keep you waiting and leaving you hanging on that for some months. What then is the point of the law? Our quick answer of the day is the point of the law is it shows us our need for grace. The point of the law is it shows us, friends, our need for grace. Now, we talk about grace a lot. What do I mean? Grace is where God gives us what we do not deserve. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. And I want to suggest that the law shows us we need two types of grace. Two different types of grace. And I don't want us to miss either one of these. Number one, the law shows us we need forgiving grace. We need forgiving grace. For God forgives us of our sins. I have no hope and you have no hope to get to God on our own. Like I said earlier, none of us are going to get to heaven and God be like, man, you perfectly love me with your whole self all the time. Good job. I mean, you never once did it perfectly love the people I put in your life. None of us can say that, and none of us, therefore, can get to God. Because remember, if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking it all. I have no hope of getting to God on my own. I have no hope of earning God's acceptance on my own. Therefore, my only hope is God to forgive me for my vast sin against Him. Romans 3 reminds us, we looked at it earlier, but I want you to see how it flows next verse. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified... By his grace. And justified means to be declared righteous. God has declared us righteous, which we could never be. I'm not righteous. You're not righteous. No matter how hard I try, I can't be righteous and you can't be righteous. But he has declared us righteous. He's justified us by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, our only hope of being accepted by God is not our behavior. Our only hope is his forgiving grace that declares us to be what we're not. And that's righteous because Christ, who did perfectly and perpetually love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who perfectly and perpetually loved his neighbor as himself, because he perfectly fulfilled that law, he could go to the cross in our place and take our sin so that all of our offenses against a holy God were forgiven and all of his perfect and perpetual righteousness gets applied to us. So when the Father looks at us, friends, he doesn't see me and my sin and you and your sin. He sees Christ's perfect and perpetual obedience to the law covering us in that. He gives us forgiving grace. And friends, in our culture, we too often stop there. And in our culture, there's this permissiveness towards sin, even in the church, and towards and there's just a writing off of the law. If I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, God loves me, so I can go do what I want to do. Friends, that's not we can't get to that point in this because not only does the law show us our need for forgiving grace, the law shows us, second of all, our need for transforming grace. 
for transforming grace. Though we're not under the law to get to God, that we don't need the law to get to God because we can't, the law still reveals to us God's character. It shows us his holiness, and the law shows us his standards, his will. The law is not something just to be written off. It shows us the will of God of how he wants his created order to operate. It's what he desires for us to be. Therefore, we need transforming grace to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in obedience to what God has said to us, not because we're trying to get to God, but because we're already there, and we now want to please the one who has rescued us. Romans chapter 6 gives us a beautiful glimpse of this. It says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin. For this is a change in our thinking that we need to think of ourselves not as I'm forgiven, I can go do what I want. But I am dead to sin, I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, listen to this, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you're under grace. Because I think we miss this so much in the American church, that we say, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Well, that doesn't mean we can go excuse sin now. Just because Christ has forgiven me doesn't mean I can go live like I want to do. The fact that I am under grace means now sin doesn't have dominion over me. And what is sin defined as? What the law tells us. The law shows us what is not to have dominion over us, and it shows us what God wants us to be. And we find transforming power to begin to walk with Christ more and more every day. And will we get there in this life? No. I will still struggle with sin until the day I see Jesus face to face, and you will also. We need transforming grace and forgiving grace every day. But the day is coming, friends, when we see Jesus face to face, and no longer do we struggle with this. Because he rescues us from that. Temptation goes away, but we're not there yet. And until that day we get to that place where we see him face to face, and there's no more temptation, no more sin, no more struggle, we need his forgiving grace every day because we break law every day, but we need transforming grace every day where our hearts long to be conformed more to the image of Christ, where we look more and more like our Savior who has rescued us. So what does the law of God require? Back to Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's the first and great commandment. And the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of God requires that we perfectly and perpetually obey God by loving him and loving others. Friends, like that, I want to ask you this morning, what are you trusting in to be accepted by God today? Are you trying to be good enough to earn God's pleasure and his acceptance? Are you feeling like you have to do stuff for God to love you? Are you resting in the fact that your acceptance and love by God is simply because of His grace, not because of anything you have done? Friends, if you're trying to trust in your own being moral and a good person to get to God is hopeless, and we beg you to turn to Jesus today, to beg you to turn to the one who became sin for us so that we can become righteousness to God. But friends, for those of you who are trusting in His grace, who know you're accepted by God, not because of what you did. You know all you've done is brought sin to the table. But if you know that you're accepted by him because of what Christ did, the question for us this morning is are we presuming on that grace? Are we presuming on that grace and being like I'm forgiven and we excuse sin in our life and just keep allowing sin strongholds to hold on to us? Or do we understand God's standard and are we so thankful that we're adopted and belong to God by his grace that we desire him to change us and grow us so that we can be who he already sees us to be? Let's be a people of God this week, friends, who cry out day by day for God's grace, not only for forgiveness of our sins, where we break the law each day, but for transformation, that he would keep conforming us to be more and more like Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've shown yourself to be a holy God. We thank you that you've shown yourself to be as the beings in heaven cry out, holy, holy, holy. 
And God, even as we look at the law, Father, we see a glimpse of your holiness. Because you're a God who not only has no sin in you, but you're a God who cannot tolerate sin. You've given the law, you've shown the standard, not just of external obedience, but of hard affection, that you and your own perfect holiness demand of your creation perfection. And Lord, we realize we have no hope of getting to you because we have fallen even this morning. Lord, we desperately need you. So we thank you, God, this day for your forgiving grace. We thank you for your grace that looks upon us and doesn't see us in our sin. You do not treat us as our sin deserves, but you look on Christ and you see all of our sin paid for, that it is finished, that Christ has paid the sacrifice. And when you look at us, it's incredible to think, oh, Father, that you see Christ's righteousness, that perfect and perpetual obedience. And when you look at me, you don't see how I failed today, yesterday, and the days before. You don't see how these brothers and sisters have failed this morning and yesterday and the days before, Father. You look at us and you see Christ. And so we can march boldly into your throne of grace without being fear of being struck down, not because we're sinless, but because we're covered by Christ. Thank you for that. Help us not forget the wonder of that, that you see us perfectly and perpetually righteous because of Christ. And I pray this week we would long to be in your presence, that we wouldn't wait till next Sunday to want to sing to you or to pray to you or to study your word, but God, we would be so overwhelmed with your grace in our lives that we can't help but want to be in your presence. Lord, you know how we all still struggle with sin, sins that other people see and sins that are just in our hearts and only you see. You see it all, Lord you're all-knowing and you're sovereign. And I pray this week you would not allow us to continue to be content with sins in our life that we perhaps excused. But God, you would bring Holy Spirit giving conviction to each one of our hearts to understand your standard, to understand your holiness and your desire for us to be holy, for your desire to make us more like Christ. And I pray we quit excusing sins in our life, but we would, like we saw in Psalm 51, just get on our face before you like King David did and confess our sins to you and cry out to you, asking you to create in us a clean heart, oh God. So this week in my life and the life of these precious brothers and sisters, would you pour out on us lavish forgiving grace and lavish transforming grace. And as we see your law and see how far, far short we fall, that lead us to a sweet dependence on you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song, a prayer to the Lord this morning.
Now, before I pray for us, I want to do what we've been doing most weeks. Is to say together what we proclaim we believe here. So, what does the law of God require? Put up on the screen for you. Let's say it together. The law of God requires that we perfectly and perpetually obey God by loving Him and loving others. Fathers, we think about that and the prayer we have just sung. Lord, we recognize we are so weak. We are so broken. We are so dirty. We're thankful that Christ blood cleanses us from each and every sin. Lord, I pray this week that none of us would leave discouraged, but Lord, all of us in Christ would know what we just sang to be true, that though we are weak, your spirit, your Holy Spirit is strong within us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who thinks this, the sin struggle they're dealing with can never be conquered or whatever brokenness they're dealing with is beyond hope, I pray today the Holy Spirit, you would so fill them and anchor them in the truth that nothing is too big or too impossible for you and that you would just fill each of us with your hope knowing that you love us and you accept us because of what Christ has done for us and that you are transforming us and growing us more and more into who you desire us to be. And I pray you will fill our minds with that type of hope as we seek this week your grace to live for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday afternoon.